This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus <laughs> and by God's grace it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law and I am tired of communities of faith being weaponized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it. Hi, I'm Nate, producer and co-host on the Full Mutuality Podcast. Let's talk about inequality. It's everywhere. Whether it's rooted in race, gender, ability, or sexuality, there's bound to be an imbalance in power, influence, representation, and access. On our show, we want to explore areas of religion, culture, and society where justice is needed in order to bring about true mutuality. I hope you'll join us for some enlightening, fun, and at times uncomfortable conversations as we envision a world where everyone can live free from systems and structures that keep us from being truly equal. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, to find a list of all the platforms we're available on. Subscribe today, and we'll see you on the Full Mutuality Podcast. All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Hey, Cortland. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm good. I good. Yeah, I had a... Um, Good weekend with my kids. I hosted my nine-year-old's birthday party. And I just, can I just say that when I signed up to be a parent, I didn't realize I had to sign up to be a party planner too. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Oh, lots of things. Lots of things that they don't tell you when, <laughs> when you get into this whole venture. It is wild. And it's so funny. I was just telling somebody um, this week that I, so like, I, this is a, you know, kind of a tangent, but we're just in it, right? Yeah. Let's, um, uh, we, I don't have much to say. So you go for it. Yeah. I want to hear the tangent. <laughs> okay. Well, I, so I started babysitting when I was like 12 years old and I nannied and babysat through high school, through college. And I'm just now realizing like now my kids are like nine and almost 11 that all of my experience was from like infancy to like age eight, because by the time kids are school age, they don't have a full-time sitter that's with them all day in the summers. Right. Right. And so yeah. I was like very prepared to be like an, a baby mom, a toddler mom. And now I'm starting to get into the, 
the age that isn't in my expertise. And I even taught like up to third grade and my kids are in second and fourth. And so I'm just like now realizing like, oh, I have some things to learn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And did you, your sibling, you have how many, you have one sibling? I, yeah, I do. I have one uh, sister. And she's younger or older? older? Older. See, and that's the thing. Like, so like my brother's older as well. Uh, Shout out to Cody. Um, But I, so like people who grew up with like, younger siblings that were significantly younger than them kind of got to be like late teenagers as their siblings were tweens or teenagers and get a little bit of that insight and experience. I never got that. So I think that that definitely is like, I don't know what, what do 13 year old, I mean, I remember being a 13 year old, but outside of that, I didn't have a lot of experience with 13 and 14 year olds. Other than being one. I'm reading a book series that my, uh, almost 11 year old is reading just because I'm like, well, like I have more to connect with them over then, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking a lot on, on Twitter, uh, about playing, uh, tears of the kingdom Zelda with my kiddo. That's how we've been connecting lately is through video games. So you gotta, you gotta find, you know, my, my kid it's, I joke a lot because, my kid is super into sports and like, that's like, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know how many touchdowns did the baseball team make this time? I don't. <laughs> so he's like, dad, you're an idiot. Uh, well, so luckily we could connect about video games. And, and it is related to the guest we have today. I will say this, like one thing that I love is that they still want to hang out with me and they still want to talk to me and, and they'll ask me questions. We'll be watching a TV show and they'll be like, what's a condom? (laughs) And I'll I'll just tell them, you know, and it's so funny because, um, I just think I love that they, they, they feel really open to ask me things and I, and I'm going to cherish that as long as it lasts, because I know there's going to be a point where they're like, I don't want to have these conversations with, with mom. And, and, you know, we're, we were talking about deodorant recently (laughs) and, you know, I just think things like that, that like, why not just like, oh yeah, sure. Like let's, let's not have a stigma around any conversation. Cause I know like I, I've, I think I've talked about this before. I heard Michelle Obama talk about this. The moment that you have a reaction, like a negative reaction to a question or a topic they bring up, they'll make a mental note like, oh, don't, don't bring that to mom. It makes her uncomfortable. And I, I don't want to have those moments. And so I just try to stay open and, and have those conversations, even if they're, even if internally I'm like, you know, they have no idea that I don't know how to navigate these conversations, but I'm just trying. (laughs) Play it cool. Stay calm. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Shout out, shout out to Dr. Tina and uh, the episode we did with her a few episodes ago. If people are interested in hearing more about that, if you didn't catch that episode, uh, we talked a little bit about about that because I think a lot of people have (laughs) have that experience. Well, and especially people that grew up in purity culture too. So I, you know, because you're just like, okay, what what do you say? Um, Which is why I'm so excited we have this interview today. Is there? Let's see. What do we? I know what we could talk about our Twitbits. All right, let's do a, a quick Twitbits before we get into the interview. A very quick t- Twitbits. Okay. Very quick. Um, what are your thoughts, Cortland Coffee, on when a, a a large evangelical leader maybe has a death and oh. is quite celebrated, but yet maybe problematic things that they represented that were harmful are kind of 
glossed over in in the midst of the celebration because they're they just died and we can't talk about those things. Mm. No comment. <laughs> I I the funny thing about the funny thing about it is let's talk about Tim Keller dying. Uh the funny thing about that is uh I didn't I didn't I've never had any interaction with I didn't read any of his books. I he was never impactful in my journey uh at all. So <laughs> Uh, I, I really don't have an opinion. I do think that like, if you think someone's harmful and someone has been harmful, I, I don't understand that it's not, I mean, the same thing happened with Lauren Bowert getting divorced and people are like, Oh, we shouldn't talk about someone getting divorced. And I'm like, I don't know. She's pretty much made everything else like horrifically public, uh, and posted pictures of her kids holding AR 15. So like, I, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna like get online and shit on Laura Bobert for getting a divorce. I'm not gonna get online and talk about uh, Tim Keller being a shithead um, the day he dies. But that's just not because I have some sense of uh, you shouldn't do it. I just like I've I've never been that impacted by Tim Keller other than quote tweeting some really awful takes before I muted him. Year, a yeah. year or two ago. <laughs> well, and I, I, I saw, I think there's some folks that muted just his name because it was such a big dialogue this weekend. But I will say this. This is what I'm going to say about that. I don't think anyone is exempt from fair criticism. And I think that's, you know, okay, you're a public figure. Okay, you've written books. You're a celebrated, quote unquote, celebrated evangelical author. Maybe you were... Um, you know, tried to swim in progressive circles a little bit. I don't think any of that, or, or, you know, you've had health conditions, like you're, you're not exempt from fair criticism. And I think that's what the people that have, you know, been really tweeting about like, Hey, can we remember? It's not just this wonderful legacy. There were some problematic things. I think it's just a cry for like, in, in the midst of all of this, can we just remember the voices that are often already oppressed and, and marginalized in these conversations. And can we just hold that intention and, and be live in that? Cause I think what happened was, and what the debate and the dialogue was, were people that were like, you can't speak ill of the dead. And it's like, okay, like yeah, somebody died and that. there's like, you can still have fair criticism about their work. For sure. And you can still say, like, I mean, I can still say Shane Claiborne didn't die, I don't think. And this episode is coming out tomorrow, so it probably won't happen beforehand. Uh, and I can still say Shane Claiborne was super influential and, like, changed a lot of the way I saw a lot of the Bible and Christianity and, like, like fucking, like, helped me in a lot of ways. And I find to be significantly problematic in a lot of the ways that he approaches issues, especially around queerness and sexuality and gender and various other parts of the fight for justice that he claims to be a voice in. Um, and I can say all that, whether he's alive or dead <laughs> or whether he dies 20 years or 30 years from now they're like at the end of the day i go back to like let's not make it about this person it's not about 
Tim Keller, it's about the fight for equality and justice for queer people. It's about equality and justice. It's about uh, uh, the humanity of those who his theology has spoken against their humanity, right? Yeah. And so we can talk about those things if a moment where a lot of people are praising certain aspects of that person's work is a moment to bring up fair criticism. I don't, I don't see the, Hey, give them a couple weeks. Because it, it, if that was the case, then it should work in reverse. Like don't say anything good about the person. Give the family a couple weeks. Let's not talk about the person. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're really going to be like, Hey, let's, you know, this guy just died. Let's not talk. Let's not hash out, you know, the, the ins and outs of their public work and their theology, then that should be either direction. <laughs> if you yeah. really feel that way, th then just shut up about it. Um, that's well, fine. And I, I Which is your right too. I saw one author and I'll just say Caitlin, um, um, who was this? I, I could be mixing up the people. But I, d I did see one person tweet out like, hey, like, would you walk into a funeral and like start criticizing someone? Twitter that just is not died? a funeral. And that's exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's the, exactly the feedback that people said. Like, maybe not, but also like we're on Twitter in a public forum. That's a very different space than a private funeral. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So I, 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 I decided that day to talk about Hank Green and his diagnosis with cancer and how much I love Hank Green and how much good vibes I want to send his way because that was the important thing that happened on that day for me. <laughs> yeah. And so that was what I tweeted about that day. Um, but I, I saw people who I love and respect who said great things about um, Tim and his work and how it impacted them. And I saw people I love and respect say um, things about, you know, valid criticisms of his work and his quote unquote legacy and all of those people will continue to be lovely, respected friends of mine on the internet. I, okay. I just have to say, I wasn't even going to say this, but because you just had that whole, like, I, I just love everybody. I just have to say <laughs> that after, after you went on the Shane Claiborne rant, like two minutes ago, I'll never forget when you, cause you're always like that. You're like, Oh, I could like go to church and it's fine. Or I could join an evangelical small group. And like, it's just fine. Like I, even if they're not queer affirming, it's fine. But I'll never forget the day that when I was still like fiercely progressive Christian, I signed up to do some devotionals for red letter to write some devotionals for red letter letter Christians, which is like um, a Shane Claiborne spinoff of like him and Tony Campolo wrote red, red, red letter revolution. And um, that day it like got tweeted out and you texted me and you were like, what the fuck am I seeing? <laughs> you, you are writing devotionals for red letter Christians. And so all that to say, I'm glad, I'm glad our friendship survived that moment in time. And also for our listeners, I actually no longer write devotionals for red letter Christians, but <laughs> it, it was, it was so funny because I've never seen you react so strongly to like the realm of work that I'm in, like that I was in, in the progressive Christian sphere. It was funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, yeah, that was a good that was a good twit bits. Uh, I think that <laughs> that that succinctly wraps up a short intro for us. Uh, and to give Cody less editing work uh, <laughs> in the night before we release this episode, 
uh, let's, let's let's get, get into, into the, the episode. Interview. We got yes, Erica Smith. This is a great one. Purity culture dropout. So many people uh, who listen to this show are fans uh, and have worked uh, with her or been impacted by her work. So we're really excited to get to talk to her. Um, without further ado, let's just jump in. Welcome back to another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Megan, how are you doing today? I'm good. Well, and and how are you, Cortland? I'm really excited because Erica's here and yes. I'm just like, I'm a little stunned, a little like uh, uh, giddy and I just can't wait to have this conversation. Erica, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I feel like you two are my Twitter friends and now we get to have a conversation. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love I, that. I love that you just called us a friend. <laughs> yeah, you're my Twitter people. I'm not super active on Twitter, but you are like definitely two of the people that I like interact with and see their posts and stuff yeah. like that we, so, we live yeah. there megan and i we live we <laughs> live on twitter erica you and i've dm'd a bit so yeah yeah <laughs> for sure yeah i feel like my home is instagram mm -hmm. and twitter's like a like vacation home but you much more live on twitter whereas yeah, yeah yeah it's just somewhere i i stop in mostly to make tweets that i can screen grab and post on instagram <laughs> yeah it is it is a, a doorway into instagram for a lot of people uh totally. I, I i had a friend who who runs a relatively big uh instagram account that is all just screenshotted tweets and uh when twitter was like it still is like imminently like it could die it could go away who knows what's gonna happen but they were like what will i screenshot for instagram now like <laughs> this is this is the, my primary curation tool for all of my Instagram content. Absolutely. Right. So anyway. Yeah, let's dive in. I We always like to kind of give our listeners a little bit of context of kind of who you are. And, and you know, I already, before we started recording, said um, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because you have a different background than some of our other guests and some of the other people that are in the deconstruction space. And I don't know mm -hmm. if that's kind of how you categorize, you, you kind of end up there for, for the things that you do. And so I'd love for you to just give us a little bit of context on kind of who you are and, and what you do. And then we'll kind of dive into um, some more conversation around that. Yeah. So I, yeah, the saying the deconstruction space or the ex-evangelical internet is, is pretty appropriate. Um, and I've I've had my clients say that I'm an honorary ex-evangelical, so I don't know. Yes. If that's a... <laughs> but like you're you're absolutely right. It's not my background at all. Um, I was, I'm okay. So my my history is that I'm from a wonderful family that is what I would call very casually Christian. Like we went to church on Christmas Eve sometimes. Nice. Um, but that was it. <laughs> it was like, it was a big deal. It's like, oh, I guess we're going to go to church. And it was like, you know, I occasionally I would go to vacation Bible school with a friend in the summer, but it was not because it was, I don't know, it was just like, here's something to do. Um, but yeah, so I did not grow up. I feel like the best way to say it is I did not grow up with a version of God that was scary at all. And I don't think I knew that's how other people related to God until I was much older. Um, I was raised to believe that God is, you know, he is like a nice guy that's watching over you and your grandparents go to heaven and everyone nice goes to heaven and only really, really bad people go to hell. Like murderers, 
that that's what I thought <laughs> growing up. I didn't know that, you know, there was all of this other, uh, many other lines of thought where young children were, you know, afraid of hellfire. Like that was so, so far from my experience. Um, but the reason that I'm in this space now is because I am a sex educator and I started doing sex education work a very long time ago when I was in college. And I'd say that my interest in my interest in like feminism and oh, like I okay, so I feel like I gotta contextualize this with my age a bit. Is it okay yeah. that I'm just rambling? Yeah, yeah, this is perfect. Okay. Great. Yeah. Here for it. <laughs> All right. So I am in my mid 40s. I'm just I'm just entering the mid phase of my 40s. And so I was in high school in the in the 90s and I was very much um a like f- outspoken feminist in high school. And when I got to college, all of my work centered on like women's rights and I was a women's studies major. We now always call that gender studies in most programs, but it was still called women's studies back in the day. And I really cared about things like reproductive health, reproductive justice, um, you know, like those were the things that, that I was passionate about at a young age. And so in college, my friends and I organized some sex ed events and they were massively controversial at the time. And I was Mm -hmm. at Penn State University. I wasn't like at a Christian school. Um, They were only massively controversial to a tiny minority of alumni who were like, I can't believe that student funding is being spent on talking about like vibrators and pleasure and all of that. So I learned pretty quickly that there were people that were really not okay with um, sex education. And my first job out of college, um, so I had my degree in women's studies. My focus was women's health and wellness. And I I started working in an abortion clinic as a counselor. And I did the counseling for people before they had procedures. And I also did like STI risk reduction counseling. And, you know, by that point, I was very aware of the religious right and the hatred for abortion clinic employees we i was working in an abortion clinic on 9-11 and when the aftermath of that happened there was this mass mailing of anthrax threats they were they turned out to be fake and mostly not actually anthrax but our clinic got one and it was from the army of god so i i don't know do people still talk about the army of god like are they around still yeah i don't think that they are i've heard um deconversion therapy i believe did like a series um which is a great pod that i love on the army of god i don't know if they're still around i remember listening to that that was morphed into something else scary but you know at the time like one of the guys from the army of god he had bombed abortion clinics and he was wanted by the fbi and he was on the loose And this is when I was like working at the clinic. So, you know, I'm like 22 years old um, and I was, yeah, like this was my, it was a pretty fast political education, I would say. And over the years, you know, I did that work for a pretty brief time. Um, I was only in that work for like a little over a year. And then I began working as a sex educator and HIV prevention counselor for young people in detention in Philadelphia. And I did that for 17 years. And so I've always had the perspective that giving people real information about sex and their bodies is life-changing, is liberatory, is 
important to giving people like the best possible health outcomes. And I've always known that that was something that was really, really hated by, you know, the religious right. I'm just going to say the religious yeah. right. It makes the most sense in this context. Yeah. Um, and so like during the years I'm working for this HIV prevention funding or HIV program, we kept losing funding to abstinence only programs. Mm. So it was like more and more just competition. Like when George W. Bush got elected, like we lost so much HIV and AIDS funding for abstinence funding. And so I have, yeah, my whole career until I started working specifically with people that were raised in high control religions was you know, seeing how life-changing good sexual health and reproductive health access can be and seeing how absolutely fucked people could be when it was kept from them. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like the patients I would see in, in the abortion clinic or in the detention center, if they had had even a teeny tiny bit of sex ed, they wouldn't be where they were um, in the situation they were in. There were so many instances of that. And so... Yeah. Yeah. And I think <laughs> I think that that brings up an interesting point that I would love to hear you talk about a little bit more in terms of, you know, obviously, like a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast grew up in some form of purity culture or some type of, you know, uh, high control evangelicalism that was very not sex positive. Um, and, you know, people like me who were homeschooled, who, you know, didn't get any sex education um in, in a large portion of my education. Um, however, there's also this dynamic that you talk about in terms of the larger political movement and cultural movement against sexual education. I remember watching Grace Baldridge did uh, their State of Grace YouTube series several years ago, and they did a whole YouTube episode, which is wonderful, on sex education, and they were, like, calling schools in, like, yeah. Arkansas or something and being like, hey, what's your sex education curriculum like? And they were like, what are you talking about? We don't have that. Um, <laughs> public schools, right? So yeah. <laughs> I think that there's this interesting intersection of what those of us who grew up in super religious communities uh, experience, but also how that religious power source impacts mm -hmm. sex education for just everybody culturally. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought this up because it is so true. Um, so I know I gave the example of like our hospital, my children's hospital program lost funding for HIV prevention um, because it was all being diverted to abstinence only. But, um, you know, some of the the biggest people, the biggest voices against sex education, they tend to come from evangelical spaces. Like even Catholics are so much chiller about <laughs> sex education. Um, but yeah, it does. It ends up being public policy, which then affects so many schools and so many young people. So when I talk to people about, um, you know, were you ever compared to a chewed up piece of gum? That happens in public schools, too. And people will tell me, oh, yeah, we had the abstinence lady come in and talk to us or or their curriculum will actually be from a crisis pregnancy center. One of those like wow. explicitly anti-abortion pregnancy centers. In fact, I I get a lot of DMs and I appreciate the DMs that I get, but several of them have been from parents that are like, 
hey, my kid is in a public school and this is the curriculum they're using. Like, what do you think of this? Or I can't find out anything about it. What's your opinion? And I just get online and start doing a little sleuthing. And I know the keywords now. I know the keywords that indicate that something is evangelical. I'm like, does this say hope? Does this say life? Like words that should be kind of neutral. And I was immediately able to trace this. I think it was, what state was it in? It was in Missouri. Trace this Missouri public school curriculum about sex to a very large um, public or a very large pregnancy crisis center and ministry. Mm. So yeah, this is in public schools. It's it's interesting that you bring up the words because when I was working at the the state house, I remember anytime a bill was like women's health bill, like I knew that was like an anti-abortion. Like anytime it was like protect yeah. women bill, I was like, that's, this is an anti-abortion bill. Like, like because yes. they would use the words protect women, women protection bill, health for women bill. That's how they would, you know, put language. It's like the- around these bills children bills now you know they say protect children but it's like against gender affirming care against certain types of books (laughs) um against sex education and it's about the keywords just a couple months ago a friend of mine who is a doctor that i work with she was like hey i have a you know a friend of a friend is pregnant and needs some resources what do you think of this center i found and i i glanced at the web page and i was like nope don't send her there. And my friend was like, how'd you do that? You're like, you like sleuthed out the Jesus so fast. And I was like, once you know what you're looking for, it's really easy to see. Well, and along those lines, I want to just while we're sitting in the legislative part, um, I, cause I've done something similar where I like one night was like, I'm going to figure out where this, where this rumor started that teachers are teaching sex positions in kindergarten, because as somebody who's taught kindergarten and first grade, I was like, I know that's not happening. And so I just want to kind of figure out where this started. And I just kind of went on the rabbit hole to see like some politician said it at some rally and it just spread like wildfire. Right. And so I guess I would love to hear your thoughts just a little bit on these like fear tactics that are being used Mm -hmm. to promote this, like, abstinence only education or like just this mentality that if you teach kids about their bodies, about their gender, about, you know, the, like what's out there. And and if you're affirming to kids and sex positive, there's this fear tactic that's being used that says like, that's going to cause all of our children to be queer, or that's going to cause all of our children to just go out and start having sex when they're 12, you know? And like, I I would just love your thoughts about kind of how things are positioned that way. Oh yeah. I mean, it is, it is such a predictable political strategy. Um, I tweeted something not long ago that pissed off people. Um, (laughs) And I usually knock on wood fly under the radar a lot of the time of like people that might really get pissed. But I said that, um, using the term protecting the children and like parents rights was the same language that was used when people didn't want to integrate schools Hmm. when they wanted to keep schools segregated they said it was a matter of parents rights and they're using the same language now to talk about um whether or not young people have access to sex education or whether or not you know it's confidential information if your child is trans and i mean those those scare tactics 
work. You know, that's why they've done it again. That's why they repackage the same language. It is, you know, and around children, like everyone wants, I mean, I shouldn't say everyone wants to protect children, but any reasonable person, you hear the language, protect children. I'm on board with that. That sounds like something that I really want to do. But they use that very, I don't know, the language with a super broad appeal to mm-hmm. cover up something far more sinister. And it it works every time, you know, like it is a tried and true strategy. And scaring people about sexual predators is also a tried and true strategy. They did it years ago over queer people before they did it this time with queer people. It was like not the first time, you know, this has been used on us before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, this may be diverting us a little bit, but I want to, to, to take us in the direction of talking about sex education as an adult, because that's one of the things that, you know, for many of us who didn't get sex, sex education as kids, there's, there's an element of like shame to some extent. I remember talking to Blair from Talk Purity to Me, um, talking to Skylar Camp uh, on a former episode or a previous episode of the podcast um, about like this feeling of like it's it's almost and my wife and I both had this experience of like wait we're thirty <laughs> we it's almost embarrassing to be like what are STIs <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, do you see that and and can you talk a little bit about how to maybe like. I don't know, just just approach the idea of relearning about sex and sexuality as an adult and how the embarrassment and shame can sometimes be a component of learning about those things as an adult. Yeah, um, this is a great topic. And it's truly the reason that I do what I do is because there, you know, there's enough shame heaped on people at all stages of life about being a sexual being. And so I'm like, there should be no shame around that, but there should also be no shame in wanting the correct information and never having gotten it. Like you didn't not, it's not like your, I guess, like, you know, your lack of education around sexuality was something that happened because you were like, I just don't want to take that class. It's not important. It's because it wasn't ever an option for you. So like we have in America consistently raised generations of young people without good sex education information and then wonder why they're having all of these you know relationship problems or unwanted sexual health outcomes and you know what i would say to anybody who feels embarrassed that they don't know this stuff is like please give yourself a bit of a break there's no reason to add more shame or to give yourself another barrier. Like you were given a lot of barriers already, you know, assuming, you know, if I'm talking about the average person who was raised in purity culture, the barriers are there already. Don't add them by being like, oh, now I'm embarrassed or now I I should have known this. Like, sure, in a perfect world, we would have comprehensive sex ed in schools that is age appropriate and effective. And we would also have families that talked openly about things but that's not what most of us get so it's like it's your only choice is to take take initiative for yourself and to take like the action to seek out the information and while the reason another reason i like 
do what I do is because it's overwhelming. Like if if I didn't know anything about a topic and I was just supposed to do my own research, I'm like, I kind of need someone to guide me through. Like, I don't even know what I don't know is what a lot of people say. So, yeah, I think even for people that might have had decent sex ed as young people, there's massive amounts of information to still learn as adults that isn't in that kind of curriculum. So, I mean, I tell people that I constantly learn new things, which is true, even though this is my work, but the topic of sex is so massive that there's new information, not even just in a scientific, from a scientific angle, but new information culturally all the time. So you never can stop learning about this topic. If you want to, you could learn about it for the rest of your life. So I hope that takes away some of the shame little a little bit because even sex educators still need more sex education. Well, and I think... Um... On top of not knowing things about sex, I think there's you, you, I've seen you post about this before. I think that there's a whole realm of people that don't know that they're queer or people that are closeted, yeah. but I think <laughs> like closeted, but also there's, you know, just people that just never ne are just newly discovering. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I'm curious because I, I know that's something that you end up seeing a lot in, in what you do is, am I right? Oh yeah. So I, um, I run purity culture dropout queer support groups and I don't, I mean, I run them at least once a year and I'm just wrapping up, um, this year's as like this week is our last group for the year actually. And so many people who I work with, they say that they did not, they didn't have the ability to come out because they, they weren't able to even connect what they were feeling with language because it was so forbidden. So being raised in a, very conservative religion often delays people's coming out to themselves, let alone people's coming out to others. And then that often comes with a lot of feelings of grief and regret and like, what would my life have been like if I had realized I was queer when I was 15? And I always say like, you cannot compare your coming out journey to the coming out journey of like some young person in 2023. Because first of all, a lot of people were coming out at younger and younger ages, and that wasn't accessible to you. Plus, you were raised in a very conservative religion. So if you didn't realize you were queer until you were 30, 40, that's actually pretty average. And it doesn't mean that you can't still, you know, fully embrace your identity. It just means you had a different, a different journey than other people with, with coming to understand it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess what would you say are like some of the, the, if, I guess if you were to, to talk to, you know, you've talked to a lot of different people coming out of a lot of different contexts and, uh, you kind of talked about like, it's not just the scientific side, but also the cultural and the social side. What are, what are some of those things that you would say are, aha moments or moments for clients that you're working with where they're like, oh, this was something I, I think about like for myself, like learning about split attraction model was like a Jesus fucking Christ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Uh, this explains yeah. a ton. Um, what are some of those things that, that you see with clients that are maybe things that people who are listening to this can look into and begin mm -hmm. to maybe do some research about or some reading about to help make sense of 
aspects of their identity and sexuality? Yeah. So immediately something came to mind and this, every time I talk about this, people are like, whoa. <laughs> and that is, um, I get a lot of people that when they, when someone is interested in them or attracted to them, they are so uncomfortable because they've been taught that to be attracted to someone means you are devaluing them or disrespecting them. So they mm -hmm. don't have any way to, to reconcile that you can find someone super hot and attractive and also value them as a person because you they were taught that the, those two things can't coexist and so i have so many clients who are not only deeply uncomfortable when someone wants to date them but they are deeply uncomfortable expressing interest in another person because they're like well then they're that's gonna it, that's gonna signal that i only see them as a piece of meat and that's not true, but that's so hard for people to to realize that, you know, if, if you think that being attracted to someone immediately equals not respecting them, there is a lot of unpacking to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that kind of leads into to something that we've talked about a ton on this podcast, uh, and I'd be curious your thoughts on is the i don't want to call it a pipeline because it makes it sound like maybe a bigger problem but the <laughs> pipeline of uh post-purity culture uh typically cishet man to being kind of a weirdo because they don't know what they're doing on the mm -hmm. internet um it's something that we get a lot of people talking about in terms of like, I deconstructed purity culture so I can send you a dick pic, you know, like, ah. uh, do you feel like there is a element of because I think because we don't have some language early on and then there becomes this place of like, oh, well, I can be free sexually, but we don't talk about what that actually means in the actual interaction with others um and how consent and some other things play into that could is that something that you have noticed or experienced or can speak to a little bit that's so interesting because i do work with i work with people of any gender and the people that i've had come to me who are men have never told me about doing anything like that so i'm, I'm like maybe those guys aren't who i'm <laughs> speaking of are not people seeking out your services let's that's just, what i'm saying yeah start so there. i'm 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 very not aware of this side of the purity culture deconstruction people where there are folks that are like oh now it's just a free-for-all um the the people that come to work with me are are the ones that are like overly concerned about consent overly and not that you could be overly concerned but you know what i mean who were like terrified of making a misstep essentially terrified of communicating in a way that is harmful to women and those are the guys i speak to um so yeah i don't i don't get to interact with or witness much of what you must have <laughs> both interacted with and witnessed that's very interesting yeah it's definitely it's definitely been something that we've seen that we've seen other people talk about um I have a, another question that's a little bit in a different direction. Um, mm -hmm. And in, if, if folks have been listening to the podcast, they hear me rant about this all the time. But um, I, I see people that are kind of like deconstructing, quote unquote, deconstructing purity culture, but really feel like 
um, their, their version of that is deconstructing like the shame that comes with it, but not necessarily the teaching that comes with it. And so like, I have this big thing where, um, I see people kind of say, we know that, um, the, the biblical traditional sexual ethic is abstinence only, but if you fuck up, then we're going to like, you know, forgive there's forgiveness and that's deconstructing purity culture. And I would love to hear you speak a little bit to the, just what, what the abstinence only message, like how damaging that alone can be. Um, because mm-hmm. I think there's people that think like, Oh, if we just deconstruct the shame part, we can keep the abstinence only. And I, and I have this big thing, like I, choose that for you. That's great. But the moment you say that it's like, quote unquote, God's design for, you know, sex and and marriage and all of that, then you're Mm -hmm. prescribing it. And so I have, I have that. And so I would love to just hear you talk about like the damage that that message does to people. Yeah. I mean, it's still putting, and, and I, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like, you know, I've, I've been in, in conversations on Twitter and have witnessed, you know, I see a lot and I get a lot of education and I've seen, you know, people who have like written books about like a new take on purity culture, how bad purity culture was, but they're not different fundamentally. Um, So yeah, I, my first question is like, if you were only pushing abstinence, I just want to know, like, why don't you want people to have sex? Like why? what is the reason? And if it's just like, well, because it's in the Bible, then it's like, I need more. I need to know, like, why should that be everyone's goal? I don't know. This is where I feel like my outsider status is helpful because it wouldn't even occur to me to continue to, to, to get rid of one part of purity culture and keep others. (laughs) I'm just like, let's just throw the whole thing out. Like, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with making the choice to abstain because it is in line with your values. I think it's a wonderful choice just as having sex can be a wonderful choice, but it truly should be about what is right for you, what feels good for you. And if what feels good for you is not to be with anybody, do it. I will find ways to support you in that. For example, when I worked with youth in detention, I would always ask what their goals were. And sometimes the young people would be like, I don't, I don't want to have sex anymore. You know, I, I don't want to mess with boys anymore. And I'd say, okay, let's unpack that a little. When you say you don't want to have sex, does that mean you just want to, you would still make out? Would you still kiss? Would you still date? Because if you truly want to not have sex, let's, let's figure out how we can, you know, make that goal an attainable goal with like achievable steps. So I am not at all opposed to the choice of abstinence or the choice of celibacy like do what do you you know but when other people prescribe that choice for you that is where I just don't I don't know why and I don't think that's healthy so yeah yeah well and I think I think you you mentioned like motives like what's the reason or what's the motive and I think that without talking about that element of it you are like inferring a binary that basically says if if you know maybe the 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 reason might be to not get someone pregnant or uh not get an sti or whatever you're Mm -hmm. you're cutting off the additional information that could help you 
prevent pregnancy or prevent SDI yes. or these other things by using this like shortcut or this like kind of patch of don't have sex. Yeah. And, and honestly, like helping people achieve the goal, if their personal goal is that they don't want to have sex again, that's, that's great, but they should still get sex education. That means learning about their bodies, learning about the bodies of other people, learning how relationships function, learning how to communicate with people, learning consent, learning about respecting other partners. Like that's still important. And if you decide you're not going to have sex and you don't want to have sex, great. But this is still like information for life that we shouldn't just be like, well, then you don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Or like masturbation. Um, you know, that can be a important part of abstaining for some people like and then not talking about it just it just makes zero sense well yeah i've always I, just as an aside i've always had this thing where it's like if if they if if evangelicals wanted people to not have sex they should be very pro masturbation they shouldn't do both mm -hmm. because it's like that that could be a means to achieve their their goal yeah <laughs> Just like if you don't want people to have abortions, you should promote birth control, sex education, and access to really good health care. Yes. Yes. But what do I know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is is when you when you look at the motives, when you unpack what's behind what's being said, I think that that's when all of those things become much more clear because you then get to the point where you're like, oh, this isn't actually what it's about, right? It's yeah. like, if your goal is, you know, mental health or, you know, protecting your, you know, uh, uh, mental health, then then actually talk about like what that looks like and what the actual outcomes are. Because I think mm -hmm. when you do the, the assessment <laughs> based on my, you know, seeing of things, mental health outcomes for people who are kept from, being able to learn these things that aren't, aren't great either. Um, yeah, absolutely. So interesting. And that is often why, you know, in addition to just learning about sex and sexuality for a lot of people, like therapy is a really important part of deconstruction and deconstructing purity culture. Cause I can tell people all about sex, but if trauma still lives in their bodies from what they learned, um, that is a mental health issue. Definitely. I'm, I'm curious and, and I'm asking this question more because we've had, um, listeners and I've had friends that I've talked to about this. Um, but I'm curious because I'm, I imagine you have clients that have had this situation, but I have come across people that are deconstructing purity culture and they're like 10 years into marriage or 20 mm -hmm. years into marriage. And, and it, all of the sudden they're learning things, they're shifting things. And there's like a little bit of grief almost about, you know, and we, you kind of mentioned this a little bit when you were talking about people that discover that they're queer, but I also think there's, there's people that whether it's, um, queer experiences, whether it's other, you know, I think there's people that are like, Oh man, I just kind of missed the typical quote unquote college years that a lot of other humans have. And, and I'm curious, kind of like, how, like, if, if you have things that you offer to support folks that are just kind of like, what do I do with those emotions that I have about what I, I didn't do. And now I'm in a, in a relationship that my relationship agreements, um, our relationship agreements don't have, uh, you know, we're not in open marriage or we're not, you know, like kind of what, what, what then? 
Yeah, I that is something that comes up all the time. Um, it's I I tell people that I think the grief is is necessary and important and not something they should just bypass. So I usually tell people like you can feel that sadness and you can feel that regret, but you can't let it inform the rest of your life going forward. Because the truth is most of the people I'm talking to are in their twenties, thirties or forties, and you are young. Like yeah. it might not feel like it because you're, you, we all feel old because we're the oldest we've ever been. Right. Mm. So like, if you're 30, you feel old. If you're 50, you feel old. Whereas like 80 year olds are like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> so, you know, I always tell people like, you have to consider the perspective here. Like you might be, you know, for example, I was talking to somebody this morning, she's 31 and she found herself um, at the disillusion of her marriage after both of them kind of deconstructing purity culture and, and everything. And I was telling her like, you have so much opportunity ahead of you. Yes, you didn't get to do all of that fun sexual stuff when you were young, but sexual exploration does not just belong to young people. It is not something that is like the province of the young. And then when you hit, you know, 30 or 35, you have to tuck that all away, like, you know, and put it on the shelf because you're grown now. Like, absolutely not. I think there are also advantages to starting later. Um, you know, 16-year-olds, 20-year-olds, we don't know a lot and we are mostly fumbling. And if you don't know a lot and you don't have good sex education, that's not like you can, we we can um, kind of like romanticize what that would have been like. Like if I had just not been raised Christian and I was 20 and just at college, like doing doing everything, like we romanticize that. But in reality, like that's a scary thing and it's a scary time. And not all great things come out of those periods of exploration. So I tell people that like, now as an older person, you have things going for you that you wouldn't have had at 20. You have thought critically about your values. You know more about sex. You know how to communicate to people. You can tell people no. You can tell people yes. You know what boundaries are. All of those things are really important when you are enjoying your sexuality and you wouldn't have had that when you were young. So there's like that perspective shift. And also that you can continue to enjoy sex and sexuality for the rest of your life. You don't have to just be like, I'm in this age range and this is when I get all the fun out. Like, I think that as long as you're open to it, you can find new, you can discover new things about your sexuality. Like it happens to me all the time. I'll just like think I have myself figured out. And then I find myself being attracted to a type of person that I would have literally never been attracted to 10 years ago. And I'm just like, oh, damn, like, that's really fun. And that's really cool. So yeah, I just tell people that you can have your grief, feel your grief, write about your grief, talk about your grief, but you have to move forward. Because there's so much life left to live. And there's so much to discover about your sexuality and it is l never too late. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really, really, really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's a rant. I give a lot. So <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, it's right on. And, and I, w I would like you to circle back a little bit to this thing that you were talking about earlier of like people who are like afraid to feel attraction or afraid yeah. to engage in, in sexuality. I know uh, like for me, there's a lot of narratives around 
uh, sexuality that were kind of given to me as, uh, I don't know, these noble things. <laughs> like, you'd be a protector, you gotta cherish, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how, how do you, how do you unpack the fact that, yeah, you, you want to engage with sexuality with a sense of responsibility, but not make it something that is this, I don't know, this like, like super intense, uh, over, like sometimes it's just sex. Like, and yeah, that's, it doesn't and always that... have to be like the most serious and the most, you know, meaningful <laughs> like i mean i think what it boils down to is are you willingly and enthusiastically consenting to what's happening and do you are is everyone involved treating each other with care and respect i think that those are non-negotiables the consent the care and the respect and you can still give those to people even in casual situations like it doesn't always have to be a like you said like super serious um you know i'm i'm doing this it's got to mean something really big for me um as long as yeah as long as everyone is happy to be there and showing each other care and concern i think that that should be the basis and the other stuff, the like super serious stuff is optional. You know, if, if, and some people are like very, they're like, I only want to have sex with people I love. That is wonderful. Again, that is a choice though. That is, has to be an individual choice. Whereas when other people are like, I don't need to be in love, but I want to make sure that I feel like I'm being respected by the person. Great. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. I feel like I rambled, rambled a little on that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that was great. I do. Um, because while we're kind of in this, in this field of consent and communication and all of that, I think that, um, I'm trying to think like how to get this out, but I'll, I'll try to form my thoughts here a little bit. Um, I think that a lot of folks that are kind of deconstructing right now, um, or have been in the last couple of years, maybe feel like consent is in this whole conversation about consent is like this new thing that we're deconstructing and that we didn't get an evangelicalism, which yes. But I also think that like, as someone like you, who's kind of seen the trajectory of sex education in society over the last couple decades, this is not just a thing that we didn't get in evangelicalism. I think- No, it's not a thing. Yeah. It wasn't a thing anywhere. That's, it wasn't yes. a thing anywhere. And so I guess I'm I'm curious to have you speak to that a little bit. Like this is like like yes, we didn't get an evangelicalism, but this is also society wide has been an issue yes. too. You you guys are you too? I I'm like trying not to always gender my language. Um, <laughs> the two of you asked really good questions, and that I mean they're such good questions, and I've never had anyone ask me that before, and I really appreciate that. So. Yeah, the the Me Too movement did a massive service for us in bringing conversations about consent to the foreground. Before that, I remember um, as a sex educator talking about consent. Gosh, I guess one of my first sex ed jobs was <laughs> after I graduated Penn State, I did some um, freshman orientation sessions with the freshmen where I would tell them about basically 
don't get so drunk that you die at school and which is a thing that sometimes happens at state schools like Penn State honestly um it's like don't get so drunk that you make terrible mistakes and also like we need to prevent sexual assault on this campus so I would talk about it but it wasn't even like thinking back you know I was having these conversations that would have been in 2001 and I don't even remember that it was super focused on consent it was more like you know, be careful when you're at parties and don't let anyone put something in your cup. It wasn't like super consent focused, which is wild because the whole issue of sexual assault prevention should be very much about consent. So yes, as a culture, we have really come to understand and talk about it so much more. And I deeply appreciate that because we are also now able to see things that we might've thought of as not not really sexual assault we're able to define many more things as sexual assault whereas before it would have been like ah that's just boys being boys or you know that's just you just regret it at the next day like we've we've found that that framework is is outdated and so we can look at things so much more clearly and be like this person wasn't consenting so you are so right in saying that it's it's new for everybody and the me too movement kind of supercharged it and it has it was a long time coming for sure yeah and i i have a spin off kind of like question about that in terms of communication around sex and sexual encounters um and i know we're we're like coming in on time so this could be a big question but like uh in terms of like I know like for me, like there are narratives, there are things that I have that are attractions that involve spontaneity and involve those things. And I think that there is oftentimes this hesitancy to have communication beforehand mm. and therefore kind of set yourself up for a situation where like maybe I'm the type of person that doesn't want to like be asked if I want to be kissed in the moment you're kissing me. Yeah. <laughs> or or yeah. whatever it might be, right? Like and so like teaching like I'm learning like oh, how do I have conversations outside of the exact moment because uh -huh. I think for a lot of people they're like okay, well if I need to ask consent or if I need to to give consent in every moment, how mm -hmm. do I also rectify that with the idea that I like other aspects of interaction, yeah. right? Because it would be clunky to just after every single moment, you know, <laughs> is is this okay? Is this okay? And I think that that has a time and a place, especially if you were with someone new for the first time. And especially if I think, you know, we should ideally have conversations with partners if we have some kind of trauma in our past about sexuality and that includes purity culture so if you're like very nervous and you haven't had much sexual experience and you want the other person to go slow i think we should talk about that first and then when we're actually in the situation it is appropriate to check in and say is this okay is this okay but there are other ways of doing that that make it less of a like constantly checking in and that is one of them is something that I call blanket consent. I didn't make that up. So we call it blanket consent. So that's just like, if you have to do that with someone you trust, if you're in a relationship, if you have a really good, you know, strong sense of trust with somebody, kind of being like, 
I'm cool with things until I tell you I'm not. So for an for a sexual encounter, that mean that might mean like you can make out, you can start touching, and if something goes too far, you're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That is that is fine. I don't, you know, that doesn't mean that you were harmed. You were clearly communicating that you wanted to stop in that moment, and the person ideally, of course, stops. Um, you know, I would say like I've been with my partner since for like almost nine years blanket consent so if like we're in the kitchen and he walks by and like touches my boob it's fine you know what i mean but it wouldn't have been fine on the first date yeah so you kind of establish that sense of safety and comfort with people over time and yeah one of the things i think is is also knowing that you can put the you know lay it out there like Hey, I would like to make out and I'm okay. Uh, you know, I'll tell you if I'll tell you when I need to stop or I'll assume that everything is cool with you unless you tell me otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just giving language to, I think so many of us were taught that we were supposed to be reading some type of like unspoken script or unspoken narrative. Um, especially I think the kind of the toxic masculine, narrative which is you have to take control and women oh, want yeah. you to <laughs> you know et cetera et cetera and and i know you know matt the starkey gent who was on the pod talked about this idea of of you know you gotta be a conqueror and women need to see you be super dominant and all this sort of stuff yeah. uh that can sometimes you know make it so you're like oh is it is it okay sometimes i do want to ask or talk about things um so I appreciate you you kind of like laying out the different ways that communication can exist. Um, mm -hmm. Because like I said, I think so much, many of us were taught that it's supposed to be unspoken and there's something that makes it somehow sexier if it's oh, yeah. not talked about. It's, it's so ridiculous. I, I talk about that specific concept all the time with people that all of the sex that we see on TVs and movies is super hot and no one communicates. It's just like they fall in the door making out and ripping each other's clothes off. And before you know it, penetration. Like that's what happens in TV and movie sex all the time. Exactly. And I'm like at no point, you know, no one was like, can you turn the fan on? Can you kick the dog out of the room? I'm uncomfortable. I have a cramp. Like get the lube. Like they don't sit, you don't see that in the in the examples we have of sex, but real sex between regular ass people requires pretty regular communication. Well, and I'm, yeah. I'm also glad for this conversation too. I had a friend recently tell me that she was with a partner, a former partner of hers that, um, it was like over asking consent all the time. And they, you know, uh -huh. they had that consent, but, or that, that conversation of like the blanket consent, or she tried to have it. And he was like, no, I just like to check in. And she's like, no, just like touch my boobs. Seriously. Like you don't need to ask me. <laughs> and it was just yeah. funny to like hear, like, I, I like, it's so great that we, we have more education about consent, but I think having even more nuance and framework around like how to have those conversations is helpful for people yes. too. It really is. And because, you know, I think it sounds like if it sounds like work that's daunting and I keep using the word clunky because I think that applies where you like have to stop every second and be like, you know, can I do this? Can I do this? That's going to make people not want to ask at all. And that's not the that's not the choice. You know, <laughs> that's not the other option. Uh, we should always be getting consent but there's more than one way to get it and more than one way to communicate about it yeah yeah and destigmatizing these conversations 
and also being aware of like how to navigate these conversations so that you don't go into space that's unwanted too, which is the other part of it, right? Not yeah. sliding into someone's DMs and being like, hey, can I tell you X, Y, Z? It'd be like, hey, well, yeah. maybe lead into that. Like, like uh, I talked about it on the episode we did with Tori Williams Douglas that I had watched a, a porn that was a foursome and it was two couples and it was it was Bellis Studios, I think, who who did it. Okay. And it was like so wonderful because like all all four people sat down on the bed and they were like talking about like boundaries and agreements and different yes. comfort levels and and it was the it was like twenty minutes of the porn. I love that they showed that. I love that they <laughs> yes. showed that. Yeah, totally. It was wonderful, and I was like, wow, yeah. this is something that you like you said in movies and TV you don't see this type of conversation and negotiation, and part of it really like plays into the shame and the stigma around talking about it oh for sure right it's like yeah well how if i feel weird talking about sex to begin with then that really plays into this idea of low communication sexual encounters yeah, yeah. because it's awkward it is and I know, again, we're at time and I have dinner in the oven, so I should probably get going. But I had a client once say, like, I thought my husband would know I wasn't enjoying it because I just wasn't saying anything at all. Oh. And I was like, oh, that that's that's not giving him any information like we need we need to speak. We need to be affirmative in our noises or let them know it's not working for us. Like silent silence during sex isn't going to benefit anybody. Um, speak up, speak up for what feels good and what doesn't feel good, because that's the only way you're going to get the sex you really want. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, well, before we, before we jet to, we want to give you a chance to plug your stuff. So like, let oh, our cool. listeners know where they can find you, where they can connect with you and, um, even where they can maybe connect with your work. Yeah. So like I said, my kind of hub is Instagram. I put out a ton of content um, that is sex education focused on people that were raised in high control religions. Some of it makes it to Twitter, but I also do some reels. Like I did a series I loved back in December where people would send me their old like purity culture books and I would like review them basically <laughs> um, okay i gotta go find on, that on the reels oh, yeah. go I'm... back in my reels yeah i'm yeah. like uh, it, it was it was wild um but you can find me on instagram and then if you are interested in working with me in any capacity that can just be signing up for a or buying a webinar and downloading a webinar or doing the one-on-one -on -one work with me you can find all of that at my website which is purityculturedropout.com awesome Awesome. And we'll put links to all your socials in the show notes as well as your website. And uh, thank you so much for being yeah. on and having this conversation. And uh, it's it's cool how many people that we have interacted with who have already interacted with you and and brought you up on former episodes. So really oh, cool. Oh, I love that. To That's so cool here. to know. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you, I'm like, I really do feel like I'm in a community that I'm because you mentioned like Tori and Blair and I'm like, I know them. Yes. So it's yes. just very cool. It's very cool um, that I, and I will say this to both of you too. I feel very honored that people share these parts of their lives with me because I'm an outsider in that way. So anytime I get to hear from somebody who shares their story and like, trust me with it, I just feel like super honored by it and like grateful, like really grateful that I've been 
welcomed into this like community of people that are healing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're we're you. very grateful to have you here as an honorary mm -hmm. member of the circus that is recovering <laughs> from purity culture. I love how you culture. refer to it as a circus. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, that, that is a good one. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Yeah, thank you. All right. That was such a great interview. I love her. And I love also how she like she we we told her ahead of time, like, we don't do video, only audio. Um, and she's like, oh, great. I won't have to look, worry about what I look like. And then she gets on and she looked really good. <laughs> she looked incredible. I was like, I was like, <laughs> like wow. I, you know, forget purity culture. I want like eye makeup lessons from her. <laughs> me too. Me, you and me both. Uh, it was so fun. And she's so good at like, before we started recording, I was like, we don't, we don't plan a lot ahead. We don't have like pre-scripted questions. And she's like, oh, I'm a pro. I can, I, you know, like I do a lot of podcasts. I can, I, and she did like, just like everything we threw at her. Um, she was able to like really give thoughtful and succinct answers to. And, uh, I know personally several friends who have worked with her, uh, through one-on-ones or through, uh, the group work that she's done online. And, raved about their experience so if you know this is you first interacting or being made aware of you know erica smith and her work definitely look her up um because i think it it can be really helpful work yeah and the thing about erica smith is that she is somebody that's been working in this field for a couple decades and i think she's not somebody that's just like oh i I'm married and I'm writing a book about marriage or I've had sex and I'll write a book about sex and teach a class or like I had a vibrator. So, you know, here, follow me on TikTok for everything that has to do with, you know, sex toys. Like she's been doing this work and she's an expert and this is her field of study. And so she knows her stuff. She is so good at unpacking things and, and just holding space for people and, and just really understanding what folks need that are coming out of purity culture. And so I just, yeah, we, I, I, I guess I support this endorsement <laughs> that Cortland yes. just made. Yeah. Yeah. Go check out, uh, purityculturedropout.com, all of our socials, uh, follow around the web, especially on Instagram and, uh, Megan, where can people connect with you? Follow you. You can follow me at The Pursuing Life on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. But, of course, Twitter is my house. Um, that's where I am the mo most often. It's a big, big house with lots and lots it's, of rooms. Yeah. I, I just hit 10K. I don't know how I feel about this. It's about to burn down. So yeah, it's like everybody yeah. come over and then we'll all just um, go out into the world and, because our house is crumbling. Nothing better um, than a party on a sinking ship. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can find the podcast at Thereafter Podcast on Instagram, Thereafter Pod on Twitter. And we've got our Patreon at patreon.com slash thereafter pod. Yep. And if you join the Patreon, you can you will automatically get added to our Discord server, um, which is a space for us to be able to hang out with those who listen to the show and a bunch of our friends who are over there. Um, and that will also give you access as we plan things this next summer and get ready for next season. Uh, you can be involved in some of that process as well. We'll be engaging with our patrons over there on the discord about all of that. And you forgot to say where people can find you, Cortland. 
I'm Cortland Coffey. I still don't have a Blue Sky invite. If you have an invite and you want to send me one, I'd love to be on that app. I'm on every other app at Cortland Coffey. Uh, I wonder if Twitter Shane Claiborne's on Blue Sky, Instagram. maybe with with my Is connection he? to. No, I just wonder. Maybe Man. with my. You can personal hook me up, connection Megan. To him, I can. Uh... <laughs> How many devotionals do you got to write for a Blue Sky invite? <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, you can find me all over the web at Cortland Coffee. There was something I was going to say uh, in regards to that at the end here of this episode, and it has escaped me now. So we'll save it for uh, the next week. Uh, we keep forgetting in the intro to talk about Dauntless uh, Media, but we are with Dauntless Media. Uh, Thereafter. Dauntless FM. You can There's check out our in stuff the intro, there. So people hear it. In yeah, the people intro. hear it. But we just like I like to like and and I like to give an extra shout out because they're they're cool and I'm they're really great. excited to be a part of that. And they have a Discord server too. You can join. And we're Megan and I are both there hanging out as well. So um, that's all I have to say. Let's wrap this one up. All right. Until next time. Until then.